Well, as you're taking your seats, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts, chapter 11. We're going to tackle the entire chapter this morning, and uh, I think in a minute you'll see why it's possible to do that. We're going to be doing a little bit of recap here. And this is an important chapter. It really piggybacks right on chapter 10. And God is trying to string together this theme of unifying the church of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 10, we saw some very crucial and important aspects of a gospel advancement taking place that now Paul, or excuse me, Peter grabs a hold of here, and he wants to drive them home into the life of the church, the early church. And as we begin to think about this, I just want to encourage, you know, sometimes I think our vision for what God will accomplish is very narrow. We kind of, as we move along, even in the Christian life, begin to think that God somehow will only do certain things, and, you know, we we create these self-made parameters around what we believe God must do, what he should do, what he will do, or perhaps we default into the more negative aspect of that, and we, we always think more about what God won't do or what God can't do. You know, God, God won't work in this place. God can't save this person. God can't free me or give victory over this sin in my life. We so often have such limited perspective or limited vision. And I believe that this is so often a result of a limited understanding of God, a limited understanding of who he is and all of his greatness and his grandeur and and his plans and his purposes and his promises. And somehow in the early church, they had lost sight of who God really was and what God was wanting to accomplish in the world. There is still this heavily Jewish flavor to the church of Jesus Christ where even the Jewish Christians, 10 years in, even the leaders like Peter himself began to kind of see God's plan of redemption being mainly for the Jews, if not only for the Jews. And so he's blowing this up and he's removing this kind of a prejudice in the mind of the Jewish believers at this time. His plan and his power is so much greater and grander than they had expected, that they had understood. This is the place the very first church finds themselves in in our text this morning. And God is working to expand their vision, to align them with his plan to reach the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I believe that the same is true today. God wants to continually remind us that his plan is so often much greater than we have anticipated and understood it to be. God is calling them and he's calling us to expand our vision of what is not only possible, but what must happen. And he does this first by calling them to embrace our common salvation. That's That's where we start. We must, if we're going to expand our vision, be embracing our common salvation. And the first 18 verses, in one sense, are just a recap of chapter 10. And so we're going to fly through this pretty quickly. Here we see that Peter goes back to give a report to uh, some of the, the leaders in the church. And he begins, it says in verse 1 this, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also received the word of God. Remember, this is utterly revolutionary that the Gentiles would be included in this plan of redemption. And here's what they are thinking as they hear this word. And it's interesting, word travels so fast, even in the ancient world. Already, 
people understand and know that something significant is happening in the Gentile world. Verse 2 says this, so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? Don't you love how that's their concern? (laughs) I mean, who cares what God's doing? You ate with Gentiles. Word spread really quickly. And the circumcision there, that party, is a certain sect of believers in the early church, the party of the circumcision. They believed that the only way to become a Christian was to first become a Jew, and you had to become a Jew all the way. You had to convert to Judaism by being circumcised and abiding by the law. It was a kind of a legalistic mentality, but it wasn't uncommon in the life of the early church, and they're going to have some battles with Not only Peter, but the Apostle Paul in chapter 15. They're going to have to sort some of this out. Circumcision for them was a prelude to salvation. It was necessary for true salvation. So this group argued with Peter over this issue. And you need to understand that this was not some trivial, trite argument. This was a massive ordeal. The the sense of the, the original language is that they continue to debate with them, that there's a sense of rage and anger and how dare you and, and what do you think you're doing kind of mentality in this debate. There's outrage. Gentiles? You ate with Gentiles? I think there's an important lesson to learn here. Look, sometimes when you're doing what God calls you to do, you need to be prepared and expect to face criticism and opposition. And even Peter, Peter is the primary apostle, right? He was given the keys, so to speak, to open the door to the Gentile world. And I find it so fascinating here, what we see Peter do is so instructive for us. You see, sometimes when we face opposition and we face criticism, we we tend to do some worldly kind of things. We respond in ways that are worldly and unhelpful. We want to exercise authority and power and pull rank. And if anybody could pull rank in this discussion, guess who it was? Peter. Peter could have said, do you know who you're talking to here? I mean, do you remember what Jesus said to me? Don't you know that I'm an apostle? And yet that's not what he does. He doesn't pull rank. I love what he does. He sticks to the facts. And he wants to make it clear that this isn't something that he has designed, that he's come up with. This is something that God is doing. And if they want to argue with anybody, he's basically going to tell them, hey, if you've got a problem with this, go take it up with God. So he begins to unfold the situation. And here's where we'll move through it really quickly. It's just a recap. But as we move through it, let me just preempt it by making a a couple comments. I want you to see that this is the third time this story is retold in these two chapters. The third time. It's repeated. Now, that's significant because if God says something once, it's important. If he says it twice, it's really important. If he says it three times, I think we better pay close attention. And it's so critical, listen, because this is a turning point in the life and the history of the church. This is the place where the church begins to explode and begin to reach out beyond the parameters, these kind of parameters that this Jewish sect had put around the gospel. It's incredibly important. It takes up such a huge chunk of the book of Acts, relatively speaking. 
This time, though, as the story is repeated by Peter himself, you'll notice that he omits certain details. If you want to know those details, just go back to chapter 10, read the whole account. But what he does is he majors on certain points, and he majors predominantly, listen, on the divine aspects of what God is doing, less on the human side, the human responses, the human kind of movements through the picture. He focuses on how God has sovereignly, divinely, supernaturally ordained, planned, and is bringing this about. This milestone moment in the life of the church is so critical. It says, verse 4, Peter began and explained it to them in order. It's like, look, guys, let's just look at the facts for a second here. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time, From heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. And these six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household." As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Peter here is making it very clear that this isn't his doing. But from beginning to end, God is the one who is working, making it clear that the Gentiles are not second-class people, that there is no prejudice, there should be no partiality, but salvation is being extended to all peoples everywhere, regardless of their ethnicity. I want you to notice this, that he begins by appealing to his experience in one sense, but he's appealing, you have to know this, not just his experience, he's appealing to revelation, right? God worked at a, in a unique way in this time and revealed himself in such a powerful and undeniable way. So Peter has this experience from God. God is speaking to him. God is showing him things. God is teaching him things through this process of revelation. But experience isn't the ultimate determiner of truth, and he knows that. So as he begins to unfold the story in order, he wants to make it clear. Look, God has made this clear. God has shown me these things. God is acting in this way. But to add weight to this story, he doesn't just appeal to his experience. Have you ever tried to deal with somebody who just always appeals to their experience? I mean, I mean, it makes it almost impossible to argue back with them, right? Have you ever had those people come up to you and say, well, God told me this. Like, what are you supposed to say to that? Well, uh, okay. He knows that that can be dangerous. And so what he makes clear is this. He wasn't the only one who saw these things or heard these things. 
In fact, you'll notice that he reiterates this point here that he brings along with him in verse 12 these six brothers. So he's, he's making his case, and he has with him these six brothers who were with him in the process. You see, if you believe God is speaking to you, it's a really good thing to test and affirm that. And one of the ways to do that is to make sure other people are seeing and hearing the same things you are. And here he has six Six others who are with him. And now you need to see this. You see, in the culture, seven seals were often attached to a Roman will, a Roman law for witness purposes. You needed seven witnesses to verify something in a court of law in that Roman world. And here you have six plus Peter equals seven. I don't believe that's a mistake. And so he says, look, I'm not the only one. God has affirmed this. There's other people who are with me. They can attest to all that I have seen, all that's happened. But you need more than that. You need more than that. And I love what happens in verse 16. You notice how he appeals to these witnesses. He appeals to the revelation through his experience that he has. But lastly, he appeals this to the word of Jesus Christ himself. And in verse 16, he kind of drives the nail in the coffin, just hammers it in with this one final blow. He says, I remembered the word of the Lord. How he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. In other words, he says, look, I I remembered what Jesus himself said. And all that's happened here, when the Spirit of God fell upon these Gentiles, this is all lining up with Scripture. You see, I tested it against the very words of Jesus, and it's coming out to be true. It stands the test of God's word. You see, Scripture is the final authority and is always what we measure our experience against. And here, he makes it very clear that God's word aligns with his experience, and God is clearly working in an undeniable way. He's got the testimony of the seven, the words of Jesus Christ. And so look at verses 17 and 18. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, When we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? I think what Peter is saying is this, look guys, I would have loved to oppose this too. Like I would be on your side in all of this, but I saw God working in such a powerful way. Who was I to stand in God's way? I I tried to tell God. I tried to tell God, there's no way I'm gonna eat that food. And he had to tell me three times. He had to slap me around a little bit. Say, here, see what God is doing. Verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. They recognized that there is a common salvation for all people that is found in Jesus Christ. That salvation comes from God It is produced by God. Don't you love that there? I love that phrase. The Gentiles also, that God has granted repentance that leads to life. God has given them the gift of repentance. God is working in their hearts too to believe and to find true and lasting life. Now, once once you believe that, that God is after all people, that the gospel is for all people, that God is going after the world. When your vision is expanded to understand the heart and the mind of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, listen, then you're ready. 
If, if you can get right now what they understood here, that the gospel has always been meant to go to the nations, that the Christian truth that we embrace so wholeheartedly is that our salvation is not something that's strictly personal, that we keep to ourselves, you know, that we just kind of walk around holding on to. It's something that we dispense, that we give out, that we see the mission God has laid, us, has laid on our hearts, and we go after it. So if you get that, you're ready for this, pursuing our common mission. God has to lay that groundwork first. He has to rip away any prejudices. He has to destroy the sense of partiality. He has to show us that His mercy and His grace extends to all people. And when we get that it was that way for us, we're ready to bring it to others. Verse 19 We pick up now when it says this, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord." Now, we're brought back here to chapters 7 and 8. You remember all the way back then? Remember Stephen who stood and he proclaimed the history of Israel and the gospel of Jesus Christ and they condemned him and stoned them. And remember that man Saul who stood by affirming everything that was done, holding the coats of those who were throwing the rocks. Chapter 8 begins and it tells us that because of that persecution, all of a sudden the Jews were going house to house and they were wreaking havoc upon believers and they were sending them out scattered, running for their very lives. People leaving house and homes, money and possessions, leaving everything just so they could keep their lives. And persecution, we read here, thrust two kinds of believers into other parts of the world. First, we see a group of believers who went out and they were strictly evangelizing Jews. They, they went to Jews only. They talked to Jews about the message of the gospel. But there's a second group, a group that was breaking the mold, and I don't believe at this point they recognized how radical what they were doing truly was. There was a group here that were Hellenists. Remember, as we've studied through the book of Acts, that Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews. They were those who likely grew up in Gentile areas, not predominantly in Jerusalem. They were then a little bit more open-minded, less restricted by the Jewish customs, a little bit more liberal in their Jewish faith. There were those who had grown up in Gentile cities, and perhaps they had a great heart for the Gentile cities they grew up in. Maybe they had Gentile friends even that they wanted to make sure they communicated the truth with. And so we see that they begin to go out and they begin to share about the Lord Jesus. They go to a few different places, you'll notice there, but they land in Antioch. Antioch was a major ancient metropolis. It was the third largest city in the empire behind Rome and Alexandria. Estimates of around 300,000 people who lived there. This was a massive, massive city in its day. And it was a notable city for a lot of reasons. One, for its culture and commerce. Many Roman trade routes passed through there, and so it was a very uh, uh, influential place, culturally speaking. 
It was a place, the Roman author Cicero described it as a place of learned men and liberal studies. But it was also a, a very wicked and evil place. It was the kind of place that we would look at today, maybe like a Las Vegas, where it seemed like not much good is happening. It was full of pagan worship and sexual immorality. In fact, the primary religious temple was the temple of Daphne. Scholars tell us that Daphne, the worship of Daphne involved ritual prostitution and almost the entire city of Antioch would have been involved in this. It was a daily practice where cultic prostitutes were involved and all the people participated. It was this wicked mess of immorality, filth, dirty. In fact, when the Roman satirist Juvenal wanted to take a jab at Rome, and Rome, Rome we know this, Rome was bad. Rome was wicked. Rome was ugly and disgusting and dirty, and the, the, the immorality of it was known as well. Here's what the Roman satirist said when he wanted to take a jab at Rome. He wrote that the Orontes River, which is in Antioch, emptied its garbage into the Tiber River, which is near Rome. In other words, he says this, the filth, the filth from Antioch kind of dribbles into Rome, and it's making a mess in Rome as well. This is the place for the first Gentile church. Don't you love, don't you love the way God works? He picks one of the most wicked places on earth, and he says, here, here is where I'm going to start the first Gentile church. And I, I think this, this fills me with so much hope because I think sometimes we can be incredibly pessimistic and, and critical when we look at our culture, can't we? We look at the way things are headed, we, we look at the immorality, we look at the way the government is kind of heading, and, and we start to think to ourselves, man, there's no way God is going to work in our culture. I mean, I mean we're a write-off. We're so far gone, and, and God's judgment has fallen upon the country. And you know, this is what some people think. But I look at this, and I see this, that God often works in the darkest, dirtiest, most filthy places because it is there that the light of the gospel can shine the brightest. And so I, I look at this and I say, well, wow, look, yes, there is hard work ahead of us. Yes, there are lots of obstacles in our way, but wow, can the power of the gospel ever blaze a trail in the midst of the culture that we live in? Here we see, too, that there are these Jews who are fleeing for their lives, and just take a note of this, notice this. this, these unnamed Jews are from two places, the island of Cyprus and Cyrene, which is in North Africa. They've been given no official direction that we know of, there's no human instruction, there's no precedent to follow. These are some of the very first Christians fleeing for their lives. They go with nothing, listen, but a burning love for Jesus Christ. And everywhere they go, they cannot help but talk about the Lord Jesus. Everywhere they go, they talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. They took the message to Antioch. Did you catch that? Antioch was evangelized not by apostles, but by average, ordinary followers of Jesus Christ who were willing to share their faith. Did you catch that? Make a note of that, Christian. I mean, th these are unnamed people. They're never named. We have no clue who these people are. They're not prominent. They don't seem to be very important. They're normal, average, ordinary Christians just willing to be obedient and passionate about Jesus Christ, their Lord. Sharing Christ was as natural to them as breathing the air into their lungs. 
Look, the fact that non-prominent Christians did such significant work for Christ reminds us that the famous are not necessarily the most significant or most important people in the church. The famous have gifts that put them into the limelight, and that's not wrong by any stretch, but neither is it necessarily great. Some of the most significant works for the kingdom of God have been done by unknown witnesses who are obedient to Christ right where they are and where they do not attract much attention. I believe that this is the normal call for Christians. I believe that what we have here is a a picture of what it looks like for the vast majority of followers of Jesus Christ. This is, in fact, how we are to live our lives. We go about our days with a passion for Jesus Christ, and we cannot but help talk about him. I don't believe that that the vast majority of people come to Christ through programs that the church organizes or through rallies that people go to, although those are fine in their own respect. I believe that people come to Christ because followers of Jesus Christ are passionate about Jesus Christ and can't help but talk about Jesus Christ. And you see here, that this ends up being incredibly effective. It says in verse 21 that the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Uh, Notice that they're preaching first the Lord Jesus. That's a significant title there, the Lord Jesus, and and they're not preaching at this point Jesus as the Messiah, because that would have made sense mostly in a Jewish context. Jesus as the anointed Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah of the Jews. Instead, they go about, like we saw in chapter 10, preaching Jesus as Lord. Jesus is the rightful ruler. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the one who has authority over the heavens and the earth. And there's no doubt that they would have went around talking, probably like Peter did, about the life and ministry of Jesus, about how he had authority over sickness and disease, over death itself, and they surely talked about his lordship as seen in the cross. He hung on a cross. He died, and God rose him from the grave. They preached that Jesus was Lord. And as they preach, this is so helpful for us to keep in mind, it says that the hand of the Lord was with them. That is a phrase that tells us that it was the power of God that was working in them and through them to accomplish the success that they experienced. Again, I feel like we're coming back to this time and time again in the book of Acts, but God's people are called to be faithful to proclaim and then allow God to work mightily to produce the results. God blesses, without a doubt, you need to lock this away in your heart. God blesses faithfulness and perseverance in the Christian life. He blesses you when you go do what he calls you to do. And when he does, get ready. So many Christians fail to experience this kind of success in seeing people saved and seeing people come to know Christ and having gospel conversations because they're not willing to be faithful in the first place. I believe the more that you are actively pursuing people for the Lord, the more you will see fruitfulness in your ministry. They see that God begins to bring a great number of people, and there was this church building in Antioch. 
It's amazing. A great number who believe they turn to the Lord, and there again is the essence of salvation, isn't it? That turning, the repentance from sin, and the trusting in Jesus Christ alone. People are flocking, flooding to Jesus Christ, laying their lives down. And next we see this in encouraging, encouraging our common maturation. God's expanding their vision. They've embraced a common salvation. They're pursuing now a common mission, going out and sharing Christ and telling people that he is Lord of all and what he has done in the cross and resurrection. And now as people are being saved, what we see is this, there is a necessity to be encouraging the maturation of the church, the building up, the strengthening of believers. And verse 22 says that the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Word traveled back to Jerusalem. They heard that God was saving Gentiles. Surely, again, remember at this time, they had already had the news of what had happened with Peter and Cornelius. And so the wheels are beginning to turn in Jerusalem. They want to send somebody out to investigate, to find out, is this real? Is is this legitimate? Is God really working in this place? So it says in verse 22 that they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Barnabas was a known and respected person in the church. We've heard about him already. Remember in Acts chapter 4, right before Ananias and Sapphira, Barnabas comes forward and he gives all this money to the church that he had sold his property, he'd given it all. He was an incredibly generous man. His name means son of encouragement. He was loving. He had become a significant and respected leader and teacher in the church. Remember how loving and gentle he was with Paul? When nobody would embrace Saul after his conversion, he comes along and he sees Saul and he recognizes that God has worked in his life and he grabs him by the arm and he brings him into the Jews and he says, this guy's okay, God's working. We need to accept him and embrace him. He stepped out on a limb. He was a man of courage. He was a man of great faith. But there was a strategic importance in sending him. You see, he was the right man for the job in many respects. And in one area, it's incredibly important, he was a Cypriot Jew. He was from Cyprus. We know that from chapter 4. And so here's what that means. You see, as, as a delegated kind of person in authority was sent to investigate the situation, they wouldn't have looked upon him and said, oh, you guys are just sending somebody, one of the higher-ups, to come and figure out what's going on. They would have looked at him and said, hey, this guy's one of us. This, he's from here. He already had a foot in the door because of his upbringing, where he was from. He was a Hellenist Jew as well. In verse 23, it tells us when he gets to Antioch, he saw the grace of God. He saw that God's grace had been poured out upon the Gentiles. He saw that God was saving people. He saw that God was doing a mighty work in this place. And this is so interesting. Do you notice what he does? He rejoices. He was glad, it says. 
He, he celebrates the work of God in this place. And, and you have to just, you have to put this in perspective. He's still trying to overcome his own personal prejudices toward the Gentile people. But here, he is celebrating what God is doing. And I find this so interesting, and I think it speaks to his character, because so often we're excited when God is working and is evident among us, aren't we? Don't you love when God's working in your life? Don't you love when you see God working in your family? Don't you love when you see God blessing your church? I hope so. And yet at times we can resent God's work somewhere else and in someone else, can't we? Isn't that true? Don't we, don't we struggle with this even as Christians? You know, maybe we're struggling in our walk with the Lord and we see somebody else who's just on fire, you know, and their ministries are booming and they're discipling people and everything seems to be going great in their family and it really is maybe. And we look at our lives and, and things aren't going so well and, and you know, God's not working as, as much in us and through us and we start going, well, that's not that great. <laughs> I mean, really, that's all you're doing? You, you, you've only seen like 10 people saved in your ministry? It's not a big deal. We can have this kind of resentment in our hearts towards those whom God is often using and where God is often working. We can look at other churches and we can look down upon them, can't we? And say, well, well, well certainly something's got to be wrong, right? They, they, they must be heretical in some way if God is blessing like that. And yet what we see in this man is a man who celebrates when God is working wherever God is working however God is choosing to work. And I think the problem with us is that so often we're so busy focusing on trying to build our own little kingdom that we miss out on what God is doing in building his kingdom. He rejoices. He celebrates the growth and the gospel spreading. But he doesn't just stay in this place of rejoicing and celebrating. Notice what it says he does next. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He wants to encourage them. He wants to strengthen them. You see, he was sent there not simply to investigate, to determine whether or not God's truly working there. He was sent there that if this was the case, he would be useful there and for their good and upbuilding. I love, I love that Barnabas doesn't just sit back idly. He sees God working and he jumps right in. This is so instructive for us. He knows the joy of being part of what God is doing. And, and I think this is a mark of spiritual maturity. All right, the, the spiritually mature people, they see what God is doing and they want to be a part of it. They want to be useful to God. The spiritually immature, and let me make a distinction here, by spiritually immature, I, mean, I believe that you can have a whole lot of head knowledge. I believe your mind can be jam-packed full of theological truth, but you can still be incredibly immature in the Lord because of how you live. Barnabas has both of these things kind of linked together so perfectly. He knows the Lord. He loves the Lord. He's got rich doctrinal truth and theology that he's been saturated with. And all he wants to do is live for the Lord Jesus Christ, serving other people. He isn't looking for a position of power. He's looking to be a, a servant of all men. And the spiritually mature are those who know the truths of God and know that Jesus Christ was the greatest servant of all and they strive to give up their rights, to give up their time and their attention to be a part of what, or an effort to be a part of what God is doing. There are so many Christians who are sit idly by. And, and I want to I phrase it like this too because so many Christians approach serving others as if it's drudgery and I have to serve. 
and I guess I'll serve. If, you know, if, uh, if nobody else will. And I, can I just tell you that that is not the biblical way to serve. God calls us to serve with delight. God calls us to serve with joy. God calls us to jump in to what he is doing, to be a part of it with a, a glad and sincere heart. And so often I believe that many Christians miss out on significant growth in their life and significant joy in their life because they're unwilling to serve other people. And there's something to be learned here. I believe that the ministry of Barnabas was so effective because of the joy he experienced in ministry. Because he didn't see it as some kind of a, you know, something getting in the way of his own uh, pursuits, of his own passions. I mean, this was everything to him. And I believe he reaped so much joy. And for some of you, you're looking at serving the Lord and you're saying, man, this is too costly and I'm going to have to give up things and there's going to be sacrifices over here and is it really going to be worth it? And can I just affirm for you, it is beyond worth it if you do it in the right heart. God will bless you immensely with greater joy, with greater growth in the Lord. It is one of the things that God will use to build you up as a follower of Jesus Christ. Here's Barnabas, a man who models so much for us, but I want you to notice what he encourages them to do. Remain true to the Lord. This is so critical for them to hear at this point in their Christian life. He exhorts them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. You say, well, what exactly does that mean? What is he telling them to do? One commentator gave a more literal translation, it says, remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. And the sense there in, in the original is this, that your heart is pursuing this as its primary focus. Why, why remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts? Why is this so necessary? Well, we'll think about what's happening. This is a Gentile church. They have very little leadership. There's not much structure happening here. There's just faithful followers proclaiming Christ, and people are getting saved. And, and the question is, well, what now? Remember where they are. Antioch is a horrendous place. These people are coming out of backgrounds where they're being involved in all kinds of sinful practices, all kinds of immorality, all kinds of debauchery. This was characteristic of who they were. Barnabas comes in and he sees these new believers and his heart is for them in such a deep way. He wants to see them thrive in the Lord, but he knows, he knows that perseverance is key. He knows that growth is key. He knows that remaining in the Lord is key. He knows that abiding in the Lord is key. And how, how many times have you seen people profess faith in Jesus Christ? How many times, how many, people, how many people do you know who said, I, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, or I'm going to surrender my life to Jesus Christ, and, and then, you know, give it a week, give it a month, give it a couple months, and they begin to kind of wander back into their old life. They begin to kind of, you know, be attracted back towards the sin that, that tempted them before, and they fall back into that same pattern of living. There is a real battle that goes on for the souls of people. Remember Jesus telling the parable of the sower, sowing the seed in the different kinds of soil? Some falls on rocky soil. Some, some falls and sprouts for a time. Remember, though, that the one that goes deep is the one that lasts and remains. When it comes to new Christians, but when it comes to any Christian, listen, listen, this is for you and this is for me. When it comes to all of us, 
The battle in the Christian life is real. The need to hear these words of Barnabas is real. To remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. How easy is it for us to get distracted? How easy is it for us to get pulled into sinful patterns and habits? It is a battle. The Christian life is not a joke. There is the old life, the flesh, that it pulls at us. Remember Paul in Romans chapter 7. I mean, he just is, is in agony, it seems like. And I believe this is Paul as a mature Christian describing the battle that takes place in his life on a day-to-day basis. And we go to battle against the flesh. And if we're honest, right, sometimes the flesh wins. The flesh overpowers us. And the more and more we give in to the flesh, the more and more it takes a hold of our lives, the more and more it pulls us away from Jesus Christ. And there's a need to remain steadfast, devoted hearts unto the Lord. New believers, old believers, listen, false doctrine Young believers, I see this all the time, easily discouraged because they're losing the battle with sin. They slip back once and it spirals them out of control. The spiritual war that we are living in is absolutely real. Satan wants to destroy new believers. Satan wants to rip away that kernel of the gospel and he wants to pull them away from the people of God. And we see this all the time. This happens all the time. And it's disheartening, it's sad Barnabas is just so longing for them to get rooted and grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ, to grow in maturity. And he knows the only way is this. Looks, when you come to Christ, you're giving up all of these other pursuits. They can no longer be the primary pursuit of your life. And some of you in here today, look, you need to hear this. Some of you in here today, you're pursuing other things above and beyond Jesus Christ. Like, like they, they are so far trumping Jesus Christ. Christ is like gone out of the picture. And you're, you're, you're ineffective in ministry. Your Christian life is falling apart. Your marriage is falling apart. You've lost that single-minded devotion to the Lord. That steadfast purpose. And here he is. He's calling them to mature in Christ. And, and here's why I believe this is so important. He wants them to remain anchored, but he knows this. Listen, mature, mature Christians are faithful Christians who multiply Christians, right? That's our mission statement, isn't it? We want to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and matured people multiplied all to the glory of God. Don't miss that the intentional progress there that must be made. People get saved, and when they're saved, that, that, that pull towards the world is so strong, they need to be discipled and trained and taught. They need to be grounded in the Word so that they're not pushed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine. They're to be built up into the mature man or woman that God has called them to be so that they can go out and do the work of the ministry, so they can go out for the, the works that God has prepared for them before the foundation of the world and we do this all to the glory of God and we know what Barnabas did but how and why did he do it look at verse 24 for he was a good man that's an understatement he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith and a great many people were added to the Lord It was because, listen, make no mistake about this, it was because of the presence of Jesus Christ within him. He's described as a man with true Christian character, a man of integrity, a man of godliness. 
This man loved Christ above all. He lived for Christ and he looked like Christ. You know, what he exhorted them to do in remaining steadfast with purpose unto the Lord, listen, with all of their heart, he modeled so faithfully. You know, we can do a lot of things without being godly. Did you know that? You can do a lot of things in the church without being godly or being spirit-filled. You can prepare sermons and preach sermons without being godly or spirit-filled. You can lead Bible studies. You can lead small groups. You can serve in all kinds of ministries. Right? You can be elected to positions in the church. You can be put forward as somebody who gives the appearance of being godly and mature. But we cannot help people abide in the Lord. Church, if you get this in your discipling of your kids and your discipling of other people, this will make the world of difference. We cannot help people abide in the Lord to produce godly people. We must to be godly. It's, it's, it's so essential. To produce people of prayer, we must to be people of prayer. To produce people who walk close to God, we too must be people who walk close to God. Like people see the discrepancies. It's just a matter of time before they see the hypocrisy in our lives and want nothing to do with what we profess to believe. And here, Barnabas is a man who models living a life close to God. And his ministry bore so much fruit. You know, Jesus in John 15 said, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. He bore so much fruit that he knew he couldn't handle it himself, and so he goes to get someone he believes can help. He goes and gets Saul, the man he helped embrace into the church, is now the man he will get. I love the humility of Barnabas, is the man he gets to go and help serve the church in Antioch. This is so sweet. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. It's maybe been about 10 years since they've seen each other. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And notice this, look, for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. Don't miss that emphasis there. They knew that the most urgent need of those new Christians was to be taught the word of God. You cannot make disciples apart from the word of God. You cannot grow as a disciple apart from the word of God. The word of God is everything to your spiritual life. I mean, the moment somebody gets saved, the very first thing I tell them is this. Now, let's get you started in where to read in the word of God. Let's try and figure out how we can teach you to read and understand the word of God. This is the main emphasis of the church. It is the heart of all faithful churches, the ministry of the word of God. This is how believers grow in maturity. It was what the apostles were to give themselves to. Remember in Acts chapter 6, to the ministry of the word and of prayer. Paul would later tell Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season. Do your best to present yourself a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Peter would say, long for the spiritual milk of the word that by it you may grow up unto salvation. The Word of God is food for our souls that grows healthy and strong Christians. If you are trying to survive the Christian life without it, you're in a world of trouble. Is that old song? Read your Bible, pray every day, and you will grow, grow, grow. It's cheesy, but it's true. 
And this is great. I love verse 26. At the end of verse 26, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This is the first time the phrase is used. In fact, it's not something that the church would embrace until the second century. They, they wouldn't call themselves Christians until the second century. And I think that's important for a couple of different reasons. First is this, Antioch didn't know what to do with these people. They, they couldn't fit this new people into any of its categories, so they had to come up with a new name for them. Maybe this name initially was a bit of a joke, you know, a tongue-in-cheek kind of a term. It might have been a term of derision because these people were such a contradiction to the ethos of Antioch. You know, they just went against the grain of everything in Antioch. They were so different, they stood out. The new term was a, a mongrel term. That's a blending of Greek and Latin words. The word in Greek for Christ is Christos and the word at the very end there for, is a Latin, which is ianus, so Christianus. So they had this term, this blended term, and the, the idea is this. The, the term in Latin is the word for a group, a group of people who are associated or identified by Christ. You know, you have the Augustinians, the Herodians, people who followed certain individuals, were part of these certain groups. But Christians were known as people who followed Christ. And I love this because, look, Christ was so much on these believers' lips and they lived so like Christ that no, no other name would do. I mean, I was thinking about this, and can, can you imagine that you talked about Christ so much and you lived like Christ so much that people had to come up with a whole new category of, of a, you know, a title for you? That's powerful. These people weren't shrinking back in the midst of their culture. They were standing out in the midst of their culture. That's what this tells us. Let me ask you this. Would people know by the way you walk and talk that you are a Christian? Would people look at you right now, those who know you, those who work with you, those who spend time with you who are unbelievers, would they look at you and say, this person, this person is different. This person must be one of those Christians, one of those Christ followers. And would they know that, not just because of how you lived, but because what you spoke of? Would they know that because you were unashamed? I just, man, we are so ashamed of the gospel, aren't we? We are so afraid of people finding out that we're followers of Christ. We're so afraid of what they might think of us. These people were unashamed of the gospel because they knew that it was the power of God unto salvation for all those who believed, for the Jew first, and then for the Gentiles. This is the call of the Christian life. They were known for this. They weren't afraid to speak about it. Alexander the Great once learned that in his army was a namesake, another Alexander, who was a notorious coward. Alexander the Great, who conquered the world when he was just 23 years old, called the soldier before him and said, Is your name Alexander, and are you named for me? The trembling coward said, yes, sir, my name is Alexander and I was named for you. The great general said, then either be brave or change your name. Fortunately, Christ does not say that to us, but he does exhort us to be who we are, to live out our calling in faithful obedience and service to Jesus Christ. All those who are growing in Christ will be unashamed of Christ. 
What an encouraging mark of a maturing church. Isn't that? Can you just imagine? Can you imagine? We were known as the people who loved and lived like Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to be, church. Finally, I want you to note this. Sacrificing our common provision. The church is growing, and as it expands in these days, verse 27 says, the prophets are coming down from Jerusalem to Antioch. They come to preach the word of God, to teach the word of God, and to help the church continue to grow. And one of them, named Agabus, we're going to hear about him a little later in the book of Acts as well, he stood up and he foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world This took place in the days of Claudius. Now, history tells us that indeed there was a massive famine during the reign of Claudius. Uh, Extra biblical literature confirms this. And and that kind of term over the world is a blanket term talking about over the the known world, the ancient world at that time. And certainly this seems to be true historically. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Just a couple of thoughts on this. We're not going to spend much time here, but the prophet predicts famine is about to hit the land. And it's going to be massive, and it's going to have an impact, particularly in Judea. And this Gentile church steps up to the plate. When the text says that the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch, It means that Antioch was the first place they were given that name. But taking the sentence another way, and I believe rightly so, we might also say that they were Christians first of all, above all. That's where their identity was. They could have been Gentiles first and only Christians second, in which case they would have said, you know, we're Gentiles. Why should we send money to the Jews? They could have been pagans first and Christians second, in which case they would have said, why should we worry about anyone but ourselves? But they were neither of these. They were Christians first. And because they were Christians first, they felt a bond with all other believers and they were determined to help them when the need arose. And the famine relief here is a powerful statement of their oneness. It made me think back to when the earthquake hit Nepal. And, and all kinds of churches, and our church included, raised money, and, and, and we, we, you know, we, we rallied together, and we saw the need, and we said, look, there, there's people who, in, who are believers in Jesus Christ who have nothing. They've lost their homes. Their churches are destroyed. They're living on the streets. They have no food, and we need to step up and help because they are us, and we are them. We are one together. There's no us in them. There's no this separation. Well, they're in Nepal. They should worry about themselves, and we're here, you know, and we have all these provisions, and There was a sacrificing of their common provision and it was a statement of their love and unity. You see, those barriers had been utterly destroyed. There was no Jew and Gentile and when Jerusalem saw needs, they branched out to help those in need and now this Gentile church is following suit. They see their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ and they know that they are one church, they are one family because they have one Savior, Jesus Christ. They weren't busy trying to build their own little kingdom and hoard money for themselves. 
every one of them. I love this. You know, there was, this wasn't required, and there wasn't a certain amount, and that's how so many of us live with God, right? We've got to pay God off, pay him a certain amount. They gave according to their own needs. Some of them had greater resources than others. Some of them were able to contribute more, and so they did, and nobody looked down upon anybody. They just gave according to the need and according to their ability They are Christians first, Christ followers first and foremost. Let me ask you this morning, are you a Christian first? Is that the most important thing about you this morning? Is it your greatest joy and privilege to be a follower of Jesus Christ? If so, you will get out into the world and the gospel will go forward from you. You will give of your time, you will give of your talents, you will give of your treasures for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the kingdom of God. And if you allow God to expand your vision, God will also expand your witness and your influence. God will bless it, and I believe this with all my heart, that as you follow God's leading in this way, many will be brought to the Lord Jesus Christ because of your faithfulness.